even the language around how we describe things you know if i if i hear another person call me and say i have a custody battle and i'll pause them and and you know ask them to reflect on whether when it comes to your children you know think about the analogy you just used battle what do you think of when you hear battle well i think of war and is that something that you would want your children to be surrounded by right and and I'm able to, to help them reflect. But I had to go through um, an evolution or a metamorphosis as a professional to recognize that we have an opportunity to help people to do a lot of good, and we don't. We resist it because the traditional norms tell us that this is the way it, it, it always has been done. So this is the way that we need to continue to do it. You know, it's almost like there's a mentality, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But the reality is, if you ask any practitioner within the system, they'll say, they'll tell you how broken it is and how, uh, how devastating court can be, even the judges. And yet there's no movement to, to change it. Welcome to the Attune Podcast, where we look at bringing trauma integration into professional systems and settings. My name is David Young, and this is a project of Wholehearted and our ongoing series about trauma and the legal system. Today, we're going to be hearing an interview with David Morneau. For over 20 years, David has practiced law with empathy, compassion, and integrity. He's been formally trained as both a family mediator and a collaborative legal professional, and he's accredited in both and was one of the first in the province of Ontario to receive recognition as an advanced collaborative professional. Throughout his career, David has observed and analyzed the legal system and has spoken widely about reform and change. He's acted as counsel for both parents and children in the family justice system and has been able to witness firsthand the impact that adversarial processes can have on families in transition. Through his training, he continues to learn new skills for conflict resolution, which give the participants the ability to listen, communicate, and solve their own differences both now and in the future. I think you're really going to love this episode together with myself, Heather, and Nicole, and the Attune team as we talk about trauma and the legal system. Today, I'm here with Dave Morneau, and we're sitting down together in a conversation together with Heather and Nicole, and we're just really kind of getting to know David and um, his experience at the Attune training, but also his greater work in the world <clears throat> and what he's been doing with people. So. Uh, welcome, Dave. It's good to have you. Thank you very much for having me. It's it's wonderful to see everybody again and to hear everybody's voices. Yeah. And uh, Dave, I know you've like referred to yourself as a recovering litigator, but I'm curious, what would you like us to know about you before we start asking more questions? Oh, geez, where to begin? Um, well, the the recovering litigator title was actually kind of tongue in cheek. I was presenting at a conference down in Windsor uh, for a friend of mine and I stood up to the microphone and I said hi I'm Dave I'm a recovering litigator uh, with and it drew some laughs from the crowd but then I started reflecting on what that meant and actually you know it, it's it's very true I I was a, I've been a lawyer since I want to say it was about 27 years old I've been practicing and and had always 
from a very young age, wanted to be a lawyer and had a conception of what that meant uh, as a lawyer and went full throttle wholeheartedly into the practice thinking that this is what it was and recognized a lot of things that I'm sure we'll unpack along the way that changed my perspective considerably, especially as a family lawyer. I mean, my area of practice, and it wasn't necessarily by design, uh, it was more by happenstance. Um, I was working with a criminal lawyer who had a number of family law cases, which got passed to me. And, and then I realized that I was good at what I did. And, um, you know, it, I found it gratifying at the time being a young practitioner, uh, and ended up embracing it from there. Although I, if you would have asked me before I started practicing law, I actually had envisioned myself being an employment lawyer. Um, but as I evolved as a practitioner, I developed this idea that the way that we had always done it uh, and never questioned may not be what's what families need in that moment. And so when I finally, in 2016, stopped litigating, going to court, um, I developed this title for myself called the recovering litigator. So that's the genesis of it is me evolving as a professional and not just as a professional, as a person and really embracing, you know, some people see it as dismissive. It's not, that's not my intention. The, the title recovering litigator is more about my journey than anything else. So that's, that's how I ended up with that, uh, that title. I mean, I think most people would call me a, a, a family law lawyer or a, a divorce attorney, um, but I like recovering litigator better. I think it embraces who I am a lot more. Mm. What are some of the main ways that you changed um, from when you're at 27 to where you are now in your journey um, from, I guess, litigator to recovering litigator and then into the work that you're doing now? No, that's, that's a good question. So when, um, you know, when Nicole and I have had a lot of conversations unpacking this, uh, when you go to law school, the idea is that it doesn't necessarily teach you what I've now realized are necessary skills, you know, becoming attuned with others uh, is extremely important. How to, uh, how to really get at people's interests and their fears and their concerns, how to gain insight into where they are so that you as a professional around them can help to guide them, but not navigate them, still allow them to, to steer their own ship. So when I first started, all I had was, okay, this is what a lawyer does. Law school teaches you uh, how to study cases, how to argue vociferously or vigorously. And, and that's what I did. I came out, I was a traditional model. Um, I was a very successful, or at least in my mind, I was a successful litigation lawyer in the courtroom. I was, uh, you know, I think a pretty devastating cross-examiner. Those are all the things that at that point in time I held as valuable. And then 
about 2009, I think it was in 2009, I was involved in a particular case and without getting into the specifics of it, I did my job. I was successful in doing my job. And uh, one of the things that happened was as a result of me doing my job, the parents of this young younger child were impacted in the way that they were able or better described as unable to communicate. And what ended up happening was when I did the trial, and it, this all came up because I was asked in a mediation training course, what was my best day as a lawyer? And I, I thought, I know exactly what that means. You know what? I did such a great job. Uh, you know, I still have the decision somewhere, 36 pages of brilliance, a testament to my job as a, as a litigation lawyer. And, you know, I was very proud of that. I got everything that, you know, my client was asking for. And then as time went on, um, I remember this particular person calling me back and saying to me, uh, you know, something's happened, the circumstances have changed, what do I do? I said, you need to contact the other parent. And their immediate response was, well, I can't do that because, you know, the trial that we did had an impact on our ability to communicate. I can't communicate with this person again. I said, well, in the circumstances, that's my advice. And then jump forward a few more years. I don't know why, but this young person's name was in my mind. And I something must have caused me to, to look into her name. And so then I jumped forward to probably my worst day as a lawyer in 2016, when I found out that, uh, you know, the young person who was the subject of this lengthy trial uh, had committed suicide at, uh, at 16 years old. And I think at that point, I made a decision, conscious decision that um, we have a system that is that isn't self-reflective that doesn't in my view look to improve although it seems to say the right things and and uh, give the sound bites that everybody loves to hear but when you put the plan into action it doesn't happen and you know what i've come to find is, is it's it's a very ego-driven profession so i said i'm not litigating anymore and so from 2016, I did continue to go to court, but only as a, an advocate for children. Uh, at that time, I had a contract with the Office of the Children's Lawyer, as it's known in Ontario, Canada. And I continued with that because I found that the voice of the child that I could bring to the table often had an impact of causing parents uh, or other, I'll call them players within the system, to think about, uh, you know, their position or the perspective that they were bringing. And I was able to utilize the, the young person's voices to be able to um, navigate, help them navigate resolution so that they can move forward and hopefully move forward in peace. But I, I recognized around then that i mean we have such a violent system I used to react to that and i might be harsh when i was talking to that person now i recognize that okay this is the information that's out there this is what people 
believe. This is kind of what the common trope has become. And I'll pass it and, and, you know, ask them to reflect on whether when it comes to your children, you know, think about the analogy you just used battle. What do you think of when you hear battle? Well, I think of war. And is that something that you would want your children to be surrounded by? Right. And, and I'm able to, to help them reflect, but I had to go through uh, an evolution or a metamorphosis as a professional to recognize that we have an opportunity to help people to do a lot of good. And we don't, we resist it because the traditional norms tell us that this is the way it, it, it always has been done. So this is the way that we need to continue to do it. You know, it's almost like there's a mentality, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But the reality is if you ask any practitioner within the system, they'll say, they'll tell you how broken it is and how, uh, how devastating court can be, even the judges. And yet there's no movement to, to change it. You know, there's some, I shouldn't say that, there's some movement, but what, seems to me to be necessary is more progressive leaps. So to tie in the training that, that you guys provided um, and the benefit that I derive from that, I think any conflict, uh, whether it's courtroom conflict or whether it's just, you, you know, a neighbor to neighbor dispute, it starts with how you're impacted by what's going on. And if you're not able and adept to recognize how you're being impacted, then chances are the approach that you're taking is going to uh, spiral in a, in a negative way because that's that tends to be how we as human beings um, see conflict. So it's it's stopping and pausing that's so important and, and what, you know, helped me along my journey was hearing from all three of you and and Sarah as well you know helping to connect with myself so it's it's an ongoing journey it's this is never going to end um uh, where I end up professionally I I don't know right now I still remain committed to uh to trying to help a broken system evolve Mm. and it's it's a daunting task and may not be a feat that's accomplished in my lifetime or even the next generation but if we don't have people that continue to do it and and there are days i'll be honest guys where i'm just exhausted and i feel like throwing my hands up and saying you know why am i trying to help a system that really doesn't seem to want to mm -hmm. correct itself it, it doesn't seem to want to grow and evolve you hear all the right things. I've heard all these things throughout my career, but when you start pushing people into action, everybody falls off and they fall into the ways that, that we've tended to do things. And it's, you know, I'm frustrated, you know, I'm also getting older and crankier. So that's, that's, that may be part of it too. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Thanks Dave. And feel free Heather and Nicole to, to chime in. Um, it sounds like you've really gone through a whole evolution yourself 
And it's interesting, you speak, when you speak about the legal system, it sounds like you include yourself in that system that you're now, you haven't chosen to left, but you're, the way that you serve has changed, but you really are not a part of your own self-evolution is also helping the system evolve. And it's amazing to kind of hear your commitment to the system that you are a part of and that you even kind of have like a remorse on behalf of the system for itself. Well, and that's interesting, David, because I I sometimes find that what seems to be lacking in society on the whole right now is that lack of accountability and responsibility. And if if what I can do is model that, you know, by pointing inward, because there are I can certainly say and, and when I'm talking to people who seek my assistance, I was a part of the problem. There was a time where I used to describe um, the legal system as a hurricane. And I haven't used this analogy for a long time, but uh, I think there there may be a YouTube video out there where I was reported, but the, the hurricane comes in and there's it's got its path of destruction. And then what the hurricane, and, and if you envision the hurricane as being the legal system, judges, lawyers, all of the other components of that legal system, it cuts a swath of destruction, but then what does it do? I mean, it goes out to sea and it dies. And who's left to pick up the pieces? Well, it's the people left behind. And so I used to use that analogy. I I tend not to anymore because it's such, the imagery is so violent, but sometimes to illustrate a point, you have to, you know, you have to sometimes go a little drastic. But I mean, I can tell you guys, I probably at the, you know, what at least I consider the peak of my career in 2019, I walked away from the practice of law. I mean, I was doing a lot of collaborative work, which was meaningful to me. Uh, I was a collaborative uh, trainer. I was doing some of that work, but I, I started to recognize too, that everybody was getting the collaborative tag without understanding what the hell collaboration means, uh, because the egos, uh, continued to get in the way. And so I was disillusioned and, you know, walking into a a room where I feel like, okay, you know what, let's wrap around this family, like a collaborative group should do. And seeing the again the old litigation tropes that that uh, hardball negotiation or whatever you want to call it um, started creeping in more and more and more as people got the collaborative designation so that they can say that they were a collaborative professional and yet exhibited nothing of that um, and I ended up uh, I you know. I'll, I'll say I, I I had to become reflective in 2019. I had an opportunity. I walked away from the professional uh, the profession completely uh, mm. from 2019 until the end of 2021. I took over a not for profit, and then the pandemic hit, and I I realized that I was just I was lost, um, and I didn't know what I needed in taking that time. So what I did was I replaced one immediately with another and taking over the charity and it was such a wonderful charity um and then of course you know what that probably would have stuck were it not for i had never run a charity in my life i had been a divorce lawyer my whole life 
And then the pandemic hit and I had a number of other things that happened. My mom passed away, uh, not from COVID, but passed away very, very early on in the pandemic. And I just, I had this sense of feeling lost. So I ended up resigning from the, the charity and for, you know, between eight and 10 months, just kind of floated, trying to find myself thinking that, okay, uh, the universe is going to speak to me, but I wasn't really listening. But as time had gone on, I, I, I think I started learning more about myself and then uh, jump forward to the end of 2021. Uh, I came back into the practice and I came back and I said, I'm just going to do this my way uh, with the values that I've created. Um, and, and again, meeting Nicole, meeting you when I did, was I think critical in that journey because it was very early on. I think you and I, Nicole, met in uh, early 2022. And that's at the time you were, uh, you had uh, the conscious contracts course that I took. And one of the exercises in that was to develop your values, your, your mission statement, your value statement. And again, I'm not necessarily the type of person that does that, but the exercise was a part, a component of it. And, and I embraced it. And then I realized, you know what, you can do this differently. I mean, I, I, yes, every day I feel like a salmon swimming upstream. It's, you know, it's a corrupted to a point where, uh, I feel some days like the system doesn't want to get better, but I'm going to keep swimming. Uh, as long as I do this, I'm going to keep swimming. And, and ultimately, my hope is that my legacy is is impact in that. And the impact doesn't have to be my name and lights and Dave Morning did this. I don't care about that. But if I help someone or hopefully more than just one person along the way, that's uh, that's kind of my mission. And what you guys do is so critical to that you know that's stopping the pausing the reflecting you know uh, i sometimes i don't i think we become so used to labels societal labels on everything that what it does is it almost abrogates us from taking any responsibility because you know david i can put a label on you so therefore it's your fault because i've labeled it can't be me because the label belongs to you one of the ones that i've seen more recently is when I see narcissism, right, and I see that word, uh, I think in a lot of cases being overused, you still have to ask the question, okay, so even if that is the case, so now what? Where do we go from here? Right? It, the problem won't magically resolve itself. So I think, you know, the training that I've been taking, and especially the training that that I took with uh, with you guys helps me with that. It helps me stop, pause, and maybe ask better questions that will bring out the best in the people that I'm trying to help. And that's where I think it's so critical. I you know, I I I can't imagine going back to day one when I was a practitioner and doing things the way that I used to do it, where it was. Listen, I'm going to ask you a set of questions. You just answer the questions that I've asked. 
right? Don't deviate, don't get into a narrative or editorialize things, just answer the questions so that I can develop a theory of the case. Now, I'm oversimplifying it, of course. I mean, I was always a caring, compassionate practitioner, but I think sometimes you became so focused on the system and navigating it through mm -hmm. uh, that it became more of a game. Um, and it's not, it's humanity and it's people's lives. And, you know, the fact that we kind of have professions that reduce it to this game, uh, and I see the gamesmanship all the time, is, is not a credit to those individuals, those human beings, those families that we're trying to help. Yeah. I don't even know if I answered your question. I just, <laughs> I go on my own tangents. What, what, what can I say? It's the Gemini way. <laughs> Dave, um, I, I have, I, just to bring it back to your own evolution and to bring you back to the, you know, the, the system that is broken. Um, we actually met in 2021, by the way, you, you, you stole a year away from our friendship. So um, it wasn't 2022, it was 2021. Um, but, you know, I, I think as lawyers, we are so trained to be defensive that's that's the fallback we always in defense mode and you know when you say the system is broken um the first thing people says you know i'm not broken you broken or you know i'm not angry my clients are angry or you know i love this it's somebody else you, you it's, it's that never going inwards and going oh wait hang on a second maybe there is that's something and why lawyers can't do it is because that means being vulnerable and we are taught in law you're not allowed to be vulnerable because if you're vulnerable you're weak if you're weak you're not a, an effective lawyer and i think um what i want to i really I, I see your evolution from the time we met in 2021 when you were already on your you'd already decided you you're already then you were a recovering litigator but when I see the evolution of 2021 to where we are now, it's with such a sense of vulnerability that you you did become hugely courageous in your vulnerability to admitting certain things and admitting that you know things have to change. And I think for me, um, this training highlights that it's okay to be vulnerable. It's mm -hmm. okay to be hurt. And it's okay to be broken and it's okay to be wounded. And in that vulnerability, there's this shared humanity. And with that shared humanity, we can then evolve. And so I was just wondering, did, and that's my experience. Would you, what do you think about, about that? You know what, I, that, that is such an accurate encapsulation of what I've gone through. I mean, my approach with, uh, with the human beings that I'm helping is I'm not always going to be my best version of myself. I mean, we're, we, we, you know, we're going to have those moments and I can always circle back. And, and when I'm talking to people in helping them be them their best selves, part of it is acknowledging when you have it. Or when, you know, you may be feeling the frustration and stopping, noticing it, recognizing it. And, and often what I do, 
you know, I, I find that the approach of uh, when I'm talking to people, identifying it right away in real time with that person, right? This is where I am. And, you know, this is coming from frustration. And you and I are talking about uh, navigating through this. And here I am not being a good example to you. And it's powerful. You know, I, I, Nicole, when I hear, <clears throat> and, and David, you have mentioned it too, I wear as a badge of honor the fact that I can identify where maybe I wasn't the person that I was always meant to be and reflect on that and own it. Because, I, you know, taking that responsibility, holding yourself accountable, that's how we're going to move forward. Um, so I completely agree, Nicole, with, with your sentiments and how, um, how the course has helped in that way, because we are, we're told not to be vulnerable. I don't know. I had a, a mentor who said, never say you're sorry. What if you make a mistake? Of course you can say you're sorry. But that was the the kind of that tough love mentality that I was introduced to when I started my journey to become a lawyer. You know, it, it's, I think if we were more, if we were all more vulnerable, um, yes, there are those out there that are predatory. They look for the vulnerability and they want to exploit it. But I think most are genuine and authentic and they want to be their authentic selves but we have systems that have been created that tell us not to be our authentic self because that's a sign of weakness i mean it's stupid it really is it, it's it's ridiculous and you know every day i'm learning how to embrace that vulnerability more and more and more and it's it's tough because that's not and it's not because of my upbringing you know i had a a good loving upbringing um, so it's not because of that but somewhere along the way I was taught that it's it's not okay to not be okay it's not okay to be vulnerable because vulnerability uh, is equal to weakness which is silly okay it's not human either yeah it's great Dave and Nicole and I think one of the things we talk about um, in the training and in the attuned community is that one of the foundations for vulnerability and responsibility are the same. And that before you can be responsible and before you can be vulnerable, you need to be available. And so the reason why I like the attuned training being trauma-informed and trauma-responsive in professional settings is that by attuning to ourselves and to the world outside of us, we can we experience ourselves as available for our own life and available for the people that are in our lives. And when I can be available, I can actually be a vulnerable. I can be vulnerable appropriately. I'm not over vulnerable. I'm not too defensive either. I can actually be present. And when I'm available, I can be responsible for how I'm showing up to other people and the way that I'm actually reacting in the world. And it's so beautiful to hear your availability, both of you actually in the way that you speak about this. Well, it, it gives yeah. me the opportunity when I'm talking to people too, to explore it, right? Like I said, in real time, yeah. um, you know, the best way to teach somebody is not to tell them what to do, but it's to model that, that behavior. Right. And, and the more I continue on this journey, I think the better I'm going to be 
not just in my professional life, but my personal life as well to, yeah. to, to really connect with connecting with myself and being able to connect with others. Yeah. I have a question for you, Dave, and actually maybe it's for both of you. Um, and that's a question around resistance because oftentimes in the attuned training, we speak about how resistance has some kind of intelligence behind it. So if I'm working with somebody or with a group and we say, well, I can't feel my feelings, I can't feel my emotions, or there's a resistance to being able to feel a pain or a sadness, we would say we can reframe that to, it's not that I can't feel my feelings, it's that I could turn off my feeling. That was something that I could do. And so that the resistance at one point in my life served some kind of function, it was intelligent. And I become curious about the legal system and resistance to changing or resistance to evolving and what function is being served by that resistance. Because I find that oftentimes by becoming available for the intelligence behind the resistance, that's actually what's needed for the resistance to develop and change. And so I become curious from you both personally, but actually as a system, what, what intelligence does the resistance within the legal system serve well i you know what and i think i'm i would turn to nicole on this because nicole the work that you've done in this area to you know i expose is a word that's coming to mind but it's probably not the the right word but just in terms of you know working towards a more compassionate system so yeah i i want to hear your thoughts on that. uh wow my thoughts are going a mile a minute on this one um, but I think, first of all, we know about, I, I think the legal system doesn't know any other way. So what exists, if, you, if you're if saying that the system is broken, or you're saying that the system is wounded, or you're saying that the system needs to change, well, lawyers like to know what the change looks like. And if we say, well, we don't know, that's very scary because it, it heads into uncertainty. And lawyers, if there's one thing lawyers don't like, that's uncertainty mm -hmm. to an extent that we have to have seven different plans with a client. So if this doesn't work, we've got this plan. If this doesn't work, we've got this plan. And what we say is, let's just let it evolve in, in the way that it needs to. So I think the lawyers don't like uncertainty, but I find lawyers talk the talk, they don't walk the walk. Lawyers want other people to change, not themselves. So... Um, lawyers say lots of things, oh, trauma is important, um, or healing the system is important, we need to do better, we need to help. But when we say, well, it's not the system that needs to change, it's you within the system that has to change. So what are you doing to either change or to help change the system? Well, that becomes accountability, and they don't, they don't want accountability. So, and I think there's an underlying of fear and uncertainty of, well, we know no other way. So if we've only been trained a certain way and you're telling us to be a certain way, will we still be good at what we do? Because they don't know where they're going to be headed into. And that's very scary. And they don't want to be vulnerable. It's not how we've been trained. So I think it's all in you asking us to be a certain way, but we don't know what that looks like. Well, which which is why I've often seen people talking the talk and then and they try. I think there's I think with most there's a genuine effort uh, to move in that direction. But when you feel threatened, they 
they then devolve back into that prior i don't know how many times i've seen it i've seen this the collaboration turn into a heated negotiation right a very positional negotiation those same people that i'm working with are the ones that can say all the right things that had um, an effect on their clients choosing that process uh you know those individuals and families choosing that process but it's it's tough to shake that which we know and and my question is do we really know uh know that i mean it's the defensiveness begetting defensiveness and not being able to recognize that and the cycle continuing to repeat itself um you know that's some of what i've reflected on as you were talking and so we just go back to these common ways of dealing with it but you ask that person more often than not most of them will say yeah the, the system needs to change but you're right it's not me it's you it's everybody else right i you know i've been able to at least say you know what it was me i did thought of that you know a lot you know a lot of what i did was that traditional approach to things and when when you couldn't uh gain agreements in a conciliatory way you then went into the bullying you then went into the browbeating you went into you know just so you know this is what it's going to look like if you go to court with me right so you're better off result you know governing by fear i mean there are a lot of systems that are that surround us not just the legal system we're governing i don't know where this mentality developed but it seems to be really flourishing and proliferating the governance by fear i mean there's fear mongering going on all around us now causing people to react and react in very adverse ways yeah yeah i think while you're talking dave i think also a lot of it is uh law is a very much a blame game right it's a yes. it's everyone blames everybody else in fact lawyers will even blame their clients i told you not to go to court you know yeah. uh, i told you to do this and you didn't listen to me and it's very much a, a blame game again which is saying everybody else is at fault we are not yeah it, 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 but it, it, again you can take that and expand on it in, in society this blameworthiness is is significant I mean, one of the questions that I often ask in those situations is, okay, I, you know, I can, I can tell that you're, you're frustrated or whatever emotion is going on. And let's assume that I accept everything that you have to say and that this person is at fault. So now what? So what do we do now? Right? Where, where do we go? Where do you want to see things go? And, and sometimes it doesn't always work, but sometimes in those moments, people will pause and they'll understand that, you know, there, there's an element of validation in there. Um, but if, if, if we as practitioners can then kind of turn their minds to, you know, not to something else, but to expanding on where, where they are and how they got there and where they need to go identifying what their values are, identifying what their objectives are, then we're doing a service to them. But more often than not, what I see professionally is it stops there. All right, no, 
your client did this. I know how many times have you and I, Nicole, seen that letter, that initial letter that comes out where it is a litany, usually three or four pages of blame hoisted on the other person. And you're expecting, so what I'm talking about, Heather and David, is you know that initial letter that's meant to be my introduction as a lawyer to the other person, and it, it's an attack. And yet I still see it's never been affected. Nobody turns around and says, oh my goodness, I better resolve this right away. What it does, what does it do? It's more defensiveness. And then, you know, it, it, then it turns into the mudslinging, the back and forth. And sometimes I see that the lawyers are the biggest part of that problem. They just continue to engage in that. And sometimes you're not going to be able to pull those other lawyers out of it. So what do you need to do? You actually need to, it, it, that's when I turn to the, the individuals that I'm helping to say, okay, how can we, if we know this is what we're up against, let's then look at what our options are. But yeah, the blameworthiness is significant and, and, you know, pervades not just the legal system, but all of our systems. I mean, I, I've had to basically walk away from social media because I just, I can't stand it, right? Nobody, no accountability, no reflection, no responsibility. Just it's, it's not me, it's you. But in that, no exploration beyond, okay, so that's how you feel. So let's, you know, help me understand, you know, one of the best leads that I have when I'm talking to somebody, you know, whether it's a question or what, so help me understand what's going on that, you know, that, that caused you to get to where you are, or where is that thought emanating from? And I think when we're helping people in conflict, we have that, that's our superpower. Our superpower isn't, uh, you know, aggressively attacking somebody so that they capitulate and we're winning in the negotiation. I mean, we predicate, uh, you know, especially in the legal system, we put a premium on winning, this concept of winning. I mean, and yet you'll ask any family lawyer, well, nobody wins in, in family law, yet they continue to repeat the behavior. Um, so it's, you know, it's, it's really interesting that we, we just seem to be embracing and it's not me, it's you, right? It, it, the blameworthiness. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. As I hear you both speaking and some of the questions that show for me in the background is what does, what emotion does the resistance keep suppressed? And like, if I'm working with a company or with a family or with a client, usually the resistance is serving something and it kind of keeps some kind of emotion suppressed. And Nicole, when you spoke about kind of like, well, if it's broken or wounded and we're just playing the blame game all the time, like you were saying, Dave, then, well, where would we go to? What would the system become? What would we do with ourselves? And it sounds like for me that that's very scary. Like that's, it's a lot of fear and also like a lot of grieving because it sounds like it would be owning, being accountable for a lot of transgression um to or its other humans and that the overwhelming fear and also maybe grieving or sadness around that is actually can be feel like it's too much for an entire system to take on at once and so even though there's a push for advocacy and change 
it actually pushes up against that resistance, which is serving some kind of intelligent function. Like I'm not ready to feel that fear or go into that kind of sadness yet. Yeah, and yet the system, David, will pressure people into making those decisions and, and creating the finality, but it doesn't augment itself with the necessary professionals to help them process and unpack yeah. their own emotions. I mean, when I think about the different intersections within family law of different areas of uh, you know, mental health or other things, um, why wouldn't we have a system that uh, embraces other professionals and other, you know, uh, the legal profession is very, in a lot of ways, is so egomaniacal that, you know, I have to be the person that answers everything. I don't need to consult with an expert on this, you know, somebody who may have a better understanding. And as long as that, and I'll call it arrogance, as long as that arrogance or that need to be needed uh, continues to exist, it's going to be difficult uh, to improve and implement the change that's needed. I mean, Nicole, I, I've seen you do the work that you do, and it makes eminent sense. And yet, even in that, with a group of professionals that I would have thought would have embraced it, what I heard was resistance. Yeah, I, you know, I, I, one thing that came up for me, I, I, I don't say anymore, David, you and I have, have, have debated this before. Um, I don't say the system is broken. David mm -hmm. says the system is broken. I, I say the system is wounded. And, and the reason um, when I was, when I did say the system was broken, I had many, many lawyers get so upset with me and going, no, it's not broken. Um, I am kind and I am compassionate and I help many clients and, and you know, you don't know what you're talking about and maybe your experience, you think it's broken and very, very defensive. And I, I realized that in my saying the system was broken and they are feel that law, they are very much part of the system. I was saying that they are broken or they would see in as I'm saying that they are broken or I'm also not witnessing or acknowledging their good work in the system. And that lack of acknowledgement and being seen as broken within the system got them very, very defensive. Um, and it all came down to, okay, so um, how it made me realize how integrated that they couldn't actually separate themselves from the system. So when I said the system is broken, they took it as I'm saying, you're broken, so you're part of the problem, which is not so. It was easy to say the system is wounded because then it was maybe easier for them to digest it a little bit better. But I realized how lawyers are so enmeshed in the system that it's actually a personal attack on them by saying the system is broken. Yeah, I, I mean that's that's a very profound point, and and you and I have explored that, um, you know. And I wouldn't necessarily say we disagree. I agree with you. I I think in my delivery of the message, sometimes my my view there is, if I can have that voice, if that voice kind of shakes that foundation. And, and, and sometimes I think my perspective may be that using the word broken has more of an impact that, that, uh, but I, I 
agree. I mean, I have to believe that the system is it, it broken often means that you throw it away and you replace it with new. It wounded means, okay, it can there's a there's a reparation that can be done. And so I think that there's there's a lot of hope and optimism in that characterization as opposed to broken. That said, though, I do believe that there are some rooms that I would be in where using the word broken um, may be that necessary, almost shock, you know, shock the system uh, to, to want to change. Because that's the other thing. Whenever I talk about these things, too, I always talk about the hope, though. There's a lot of hope in this. I mean, mankind, humankind, sorry, uh, has done some pretty incredible things. And to think that we can't work towards repair, uh, towards being holistic, to humanizing what is a dehumanizing system, um, we have that ability, right? It, we just have to kind of get in touch with that part of us that really wants that change, that desires that change. Probably why I'm not ever going to make, uh, I, I'm not the the lawyer that has a $2 million cottage in uh, in Muskoka. Uh, you know, I that's not what I was destined to do. Although I think when I first started, that was, I went into the profession of law because it was stable. It was about what's right. And uh, you could probably make a lot of money doing it. I think my the person that I am didn't allow me to to follow that route. So I, I'm I'm happy that that's the case. Well, there's so many other questions I'd love to ask you both. We'll have to come back again, but uh, it's beautiful to hear you, Dave. And I'm wondering for people who are interested in hearing about more about you or following your work, what's the best way to kind of follow you? Yeah, I, I mean, um, my website is davidmorno.com. Um, name of my firm is Morno Family Law and Legal Innovation. Um, I do have uh, on Instagram, I'm the recovering litigator. So you can find me there. Um, I've been not as active on social media more recently as, as perhaps I have been in the past or find me on LinkedIn. I mean, I find LinkedIn is where I really put forward, um, you know, the thoughtful stuff. And and I realize that typically what I put out there, it doesn't come from me. It comes from the community that I've surrounded myself uh, with, you know, people like you guys, people, um, other people who whose work is so important and being able to share somebody else's idea to cause people to think. I mean, I find that a lot of times social media is about the recognition and the soundbite. Um, and, and I think Carl Sagan a number of years ago warned us about getting into it. He already identified in 1995 that we were living in a soundbite society and our attention span was shrinking. But, you know, I don't see the need to reinvent the wheel if I have somebody that I follow that said something that impacted me i'll put it out there uh for other people to think on and not just think on it's it's not a you know it's not about being right our journey in life i think we're we're too programmed to think it's about being right it's about getting it right 
And getting it right means that you make mistakes along the way. Getting it right means that you recognize the mistakes that you've made and you improve how you approach it going forward. Getting it right also means that what we're taking in from around us isn't just our own thoughts. It's thoughts from other people, people who have the experience and the expertise to be able to share where they've been and fitting it within uh, the construct that that we're trying to build. Wow. Dave, I want to acknowledge you um, before we close and get some final thoughts from Heather and, and Nicole. But I want to acknowledge you first, I think your responsibility and accountability, both for your own life, but also for the system that you're a part of. And I want to acknowledge you um, for how committed you are just as a person that you're committed to your journey, committed to your path, but also committed to a form of excellence in the way that the work is being done and the way that you work. And uh, also want to acknowledge your vulnerability that you kind of wear your heart on your sleeve, but that you also are intelligent and quick and funny. And just want to acknowledge you for bringing all of that to us here and to everyone who's listening. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah. And uh, Nicole or Heather, anything you guys want to close us out with? Just a thank you, David, for the thoughtfulness that you've invested in your career, in your profession, in your own journey. And all it's done is whetted my appetite for another conversation because I have so many more questions. So I hope that we can have the privilege of um, being with you again. Uh, you know, just really grateful for the thoughtfulness you've put behind this topic in your life. So thank you. This I this is really humbling. So any time, I'm happy to talk. Thank you, Dave. Uh, I just uh, want to acknowledge our friendship, both a professional friendship and then a personal friendship that we've developed over time, um, and that I I do not know a more loyal person, a more loyal supporter of friends and family who you hold dear and I want to acknowledge that and um, I know I've told you but it, it, it means a lot to me when someone is so loyal um, and so supportive and so kind and that you shine that onto me all the time is um, it's a very blessed place to be so I want to acknowledge you for that as well Thank you and you know how much I love you Nicole I mean you you we've only known each other for a couple of years and, and, you know, how important you are in my life. Um, and, you know, just knowing that you're, you've been a part of this journey and that we've been a part of each other's journey and, uh, to be able to communicate the way that we do is, is so meaningful to me. So thank you. We hope you enjoyed that episode. To find out more about David's work, you can check out the podcast description notes and to learn more about the Attuned Training, Becoming Trauma-Informed and Trauma-Responsive in Professional Settings, check out our website at www.beingwholehearted.com events. Thank you and have a wholehearted day.